0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So, all that said, I want to invite you now into the book of James, the epistle of James, the letter of the half-brother of Jesus, James, the one person who knew Jesus better than anyone else, and as you make your way there on a device or however you might make your way there, we're going to walk through the first little bit of James, picking up where we've left off. We're going to commit the next several months to being in the book of James and, and, uh, and studying it. I want to commend to you all sorts of resources that are available to you that would make this more meaningful and memorable and fruitful for you. And, and in and, and, and doing that, I want to make sure you know when we walk through books of the Bible, uh, we have a, a radical... Commitment, I would say, to unoriginality when we walk through books of the Bible, that is if I come across something if I happen to say something that 's insightful, helpful, or wise i don 't want for a minute you to think that that 's anything i 've done, but instead, I would love to pass on to you my uh, uh, some of the resources that I know have benefited me over the last several decades and and the resources even that i 've prepared with I, I want to flood you know flood your mind uh, with all the resources that I could get to you. My, my notes are extensively footnoted, uh, but I would love to to get some of those things to you if you ever find yourself thinking that was really helpful. There's probably a good book somewhere that I can commend to you and hand that to you. Um, And and so as such, we're going to walk through the book of James together, uh, hopefully uh, being shaped by it. And uh, James, I want you to know, is not like some of the other letters of the New Testament. That is, it's not a bold and comprehensive theological treatise about who God is and the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. If you want that, that's Paul's letter to the Romans. But instead, what we find here is James is writing a letter to people in Jerusalem who were beginning to experience hardship, persecution, even the kind of persecution that would cost James his very life. And it is a practical application and treatment of all these New Testament doctrines. As I shared with you this last week, one of the things that Uh, That's probably the most helpful, the kind of the underlying principle of the book of James and the nature of us being created in God's image is this: is that everything you believe is visible in your life. Everything you believe, we would love to think that our secret fears, secret homes, secret desires, secret dreams, we would love to think that those things remain a secret. But God made us in His image, such that. In the same way that God has revealed himself to us and and, and, and has introduced himself to us, in his image, we are people who are constantly revealing ourselves to one another. We are revealed in this life. There is no secret thought, idea, or belief that you can hide. I know that's terrifying because I know you want like, well, certainly no one knows about this. Maybe not yet, but it's only a matter of time before the fear or hope or joy or or brokenness or disappointment that's wrapped up in that belief or thought will come to the surface. And James is writing a practical letter of wisdom that addresses all of the false beliefs that come to the surface in the life of faith. It is a profound treatise on what authentic faith for a Christian looks like. Authentic faith that is faith that is genuine, real, And so as we walk through just even the first few verses, I'm going to read the first few verses. We're only going to spend our time on verses two, three, and four. He begins to write what most scholars call New Testament wisdom literature. Now, if you're familiar with wisdom literature, like Job, uh, like Proverbs, uh, it's it's going to be difficult to have a structure. It's going to be difficult to think of this as a structured sermon. Instead, like most wisdom, it just comes along the way. You see this in the book of Proverbs, right? The book of Proverbs. It's it's as if like a wise father is with his son walking along and going, hey, you see those ants over there? You should should work like those ants. You should be diligent and disciplined like those ants. Hey, do you see the sluggard over there? It's like this kind of like, oh, yeah. And it's just wisdom that's kind of smacked at you in a row. It's a litmus test, and I would say a, a, a profound litmus test for genuine faith. And the first thing we see here is one introductory, I would say, chunk of wisdom that I want us to think through in verse 2, 3, and 4. So beginning in verse 1, let's read together, beginning to see what we really believe come to the surface and begin to consider and and pursue authentic, genuine faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I pray that this God's word would become... Alive for us and become more than just words, ink on a page. James gives us a litmus test for genuine faith. And the first litmus test he grants us, a a mark of genuine and authentic faith is joy in the midst of trial. Authentic faith is joyful in trial. True and real saving Faith in Christ and the good news of what he's done for us results in joy in the midst of trial. Trial of various kinds even. Comprehensively, whatever trial you experience because of Christ, a mark of genuine faith is that we experience joy no matter the circumstance. As we enter into beginning in verse 2, the body of this letter, chapter 1 and 2, he addresses multiple different situations that this church in Jerusalem, these new Christians were experiencing. And, And evidently, we see historically as well that one of the first things they experience is difficulty, real, live persecution, persecution that costs many of them their lives. And in fact, if you see in the book of Acts, and we know this is This is why we know James is one of the earliest letters, one of the first New Testament uh, texts that were written. In chapter 6, the first martyr takes place, the the martyrdom of Stephen takes place. And and while at the beginning of the book of Acts, they they were commanded that they would be in Jerusalem, receive the power of the Holy Spirit, experience a demonstration of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, they would then be witnesses to Christ's finished work in Jerusalem, Judea, that's the neighborhood, like the, the surrounding area. Then Samaria, that's the people you don't like, right? That's North Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, right? God bless you, right? Or fill in the blank with whatever it is. Maybe you're visiting from one of those places and it's South Dakota. Praise God. Jesus loves those people as well. Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth. But what we see in the first few chapters is they don't do that. They sit tight. They're like, let's, let's not go anywhere. Let's just hang out, bros. Let's just hang out, until what they believed about Jesus began to look like the very life and death of Jesus. Stephen dies, and as a result of this persecution, in spite of this persecution, the command that Jesus gives that first group of Christians takes place, and and that persecution scatters them. It's as if to say these people had come together to meet Jesus, and and they were still hanging around because of what the Holy Spirit was doing, but they were afraid to go back home until it became dangerous. And then they scattered and they took the gospel, as we see for the rest of the book of Acts, to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. To such that you and I now, right, a group of people, a continent and an ocean away, who speak none of the languages that are, that are in this book, we look, talk, and act like none of the characters in this book now celebrate that same movement. Praise God, the ends of the earth happened, and you're you're sitting in it, right? You're you're sitting in the ends of the earth, changed by the gospel. And as a result, then, James can say, in spite of what would be difficult times, God will work such that we can count it all joy. James is going to denounce all the shams, all the counterfeits of faith over the next couple of chapters, he's he's going to point out situations where we will begin to understand and see the very nature of our faith. As I shared with you earlier, that, that what we believe will come to the surface throughout the situations of life. And James is going to walk us through them. And the first one he points out is, hey, when you experience trial." We'll find that anything in our faith that is impure, imperfect, will be exposed. Any foolishness that we have, right? After all, this is a wisdom text. This is a text for Christians to gain wisdom from. We would read it, we would be convicted of sin and experience grace in all those areas. And and so it's as if to say, if you're foolish, right, the opposite of wisdom is folly. So any folly in our lives will be experienced as sin, Sin is a fracture. Sin separates us from God, but it also breaks things in our lives. It causes harm to ourselves and others. And so what you'll even see later is that what James is after in the authenticity of our faith is an integrity to faith. Since sin and foolishness fractures us from God and from others, it also disintegrates our very self. We become, as as James will tell us later, double-minded, double-hearted we become duplicitous, disintegrated, a segregated self, and yet genuine faith in Christ will begin to put these things back together. We become an in, a person of integrity, literally held together, right? You ever feel like you have to be a different person in different situations? That's disintegration. That's what sin does. Integrity gives us the freedom and courage to be the same person in any circumstance, no matter the environment. And it's as if these first Christians in Jerusalem, they had good, sound doctrine in their heads about Jesus, but their beliefs were not active in their lives. It's as if to say they might have been correct about Jesus, but their faith was not complete. It had not been applied. I shared with this, uh, this with you last week, is that in many cases, James is for all the head cases, right? Right? If you overthink things, if you tend to want to just think about it and not commit to it, James is for you. Because James comes along and says, like, that thing that you say you believe, that thing that you say you think is true about Jesus, let me show you in your life the places where that needs to begin to trickle down and be applied. I think there's two things we see in these first three verses. One, trials are unavoidable. They are inevitable. They are inescapable. Trials, difficulties, suffering in this life is unavoidable. And yet what we find here, simultaneously, not in contrast to, but simultaneously, God's plan is unstoppable. And I want you to know, as as sinful humans, those things can become separate and we can, in our faith, be disintegrated in this area. When we think like When we experience difficulty, our first thought, our, our first disintegrated response is God must not be good. There must not be a God and there must not be some plan he has for my good, right? And then secondarily, we, we think like, well, if God is good, that means that my life will certainly be comfortable. And I want you to show, I want to show you how James says that the, the real inevitability of trial and suffering is what exposes God's perfect plan and its unstoppability. God is glorious. Did you hear what happens? He's going to make us perfect and complete. Think of it this way. You and I are lucky if we can make stuff, right? God makes perfect people, perfect beings. Trial exposes and reveals what you really regard highly, what you really consider to be valuable. So what I want you to see this week is simple. Authentic faith is joyful in trial. Genuine faith in Christ allows us to have joy, unstoppable, unshakable, hear that language, steadfast joy in the midst of any circumstance. Now this will sound familiar if you've walked through books of Bible with us, especially even just recently we went through uh, the book of Lamentation, right? How these people experience new mercies, the climax of Lamentation, in the midst of the worst circumstances. And we saw there that the only way to have hope in any circumstance is that you don't have any hope in your circumstance. The only way to have hope throughout any environment or any situation is that your hope is not grounded in the situation. It has to be grounded in something else. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's walk through some of these pieces together. Count it all joy. My brothers, right? This is a, a, an encompassing term, brothers and sisters, right? The brethren, the sistren, if you will. But notice here, joy, the joy that we have in Christ is timeless. The joy that we experience in Christ is true and powerful across circumstances, even circumstances of trial. Happiness, in this sense, is time-bound. Now, i want to be careful here. I don't want to create a false dichotomy between... Uh, joy and happiness. I am all about happiness, right? We saw this as we walked through the book of Psalms. The Old Testament word for blessed is synonymous with the word for happy, right? So I, I don't want you to think about like, uh, happiness and joy, being against each other. And if you're happy in this life, you're like somehow not joyful in, in, in eternal life, right? That's, I don't want to do it. We are for happiness, right? Some of you heard me say this, but uh, one, of the, one of the famous quotes um, from our, our dead hero, Charles Spurgeon, right? Someone was saying like, you know, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and, and, uh, and the faith and responsibility of humans? And, and, and our, our friend, Pastor Spurgeon, he said, I never reconcile friends, never. Right? So, how do you reconcile eternal joy and temporal happiness? We don't. They're not enemies, they're friends. However, what he is seeming to, to point to here is something was going on in the trials that these people were experiencing that exposed that they needed to hear that their joy was unshakable. Think of it this way joy in Christ is timeless. Joy in this world, in this life, is time bound. You may have heard me say this before. We talked about it in the Gospel of John, but the word secular as opposed to sacred, right? The word saculum literally means now, a period of lifetime that is now. And so secularism is nowism, it's an obsession with the now. It is a fixation on this life and the now. It is the belief that your best life has to be now. That is, by definition, secularism, right? Let's bring all the gifts, all the goodness, all the pleasure, all the comfort, all the power, all the control. Let's experience it now. We have to do it now in this life. And that, by definition, is secularism. It's living in the moment, right? YOLO, you only live once. That's only true if you miss the gospel. He says, count it all joy, because your joy is not rooted in the now. Your joy is rooted, did you catch that? In the perfect plan of God. Now, in this book, we're going to encounter several practical commands and counsel. And notice that the first command he gives us is after our joy. It's after our joy two things. One, I know many of you, maybe we were raised in a religious background and you, you, you feel guilty or shameful or, or, or anxious whenever good things are happening, right? Like if you're like, just wait, right? You know, you, you know who you are, right? If you, if you can't name your friend who's this way, you're this way, right? Right? Like, it's, isn't it great? Well, it's gonna, you know, you know, <laughs> it's gonna be terrible tomorrow, right? Like, isn't it a beautiful sunny day? Well, just, you know, don't count on the weather, right? Like, Isn't this great? But down deep, you know know the fear that is underneath this, right? Like, good things happen, and you're like, don't don't count on it. Any given moment, God's going to lose his patience with me. He's going to pull the rug out from underneath me. But notice, the first thing he offers to us is authentic faith experiences joy. Don't miss this. God is after and for your joy. There's no such thing as a joyless Christian. Here's the second half of that, though. I know many of you wrestle with bitterness, deep discontentment. And I want you to know something here. This is a convicting word, isn't it? It's as if to say, you haven't met Jesus if that defines your life. This'll be good for some of you. Like some of you maybe you're raised in a religious background and, and you're really and you really think that God's after your obligation. God's God's after your life just be like, you know, be a Christian and just suck it up, right? Just like plow through it, right? That's yeah. You know, and just just submit begrudgingly, bitterly, you know, and then every once in a while throw in a little, you know, like, well, could be worse, or Lord helps those who help themselves, right? Just something anti-gospel and ridiculous, right? God is for your joy. God is after your joy. That misery you experience is not God's plan for you. That misery that you experience is the work of the enemy or the work of yourself. That misery you experience is something God sent his son Jesus to heal To restore, God is after your joy. A timeless joy. Not a joy built in the now. A joy that can endure any circumstance. Joy, think of it this way, is integral to faith. Not optional. Joy is an essential part of faith in Christ. It is not optional. And if you lack joy in this life, And in Christ's work, then friend, two things. You haven't heard the misery that you deserve because of your sin. And you haven't encountered how gracious Jesus is. For you. He went to the cross for you. He had in mind saving you by name. Redeeming us. And if that doesn't fill you with joy, you missed it. Joy is integral to faith. All I can tell you is that I think often we receive just way too little joy from the Father. And I hope that as a church, this is something we I shared this with you uh, when we celebrated five years uh, gathering together. I, I want one of the most important features and liturgies and rhythms, if you will, in the life of our church to be the to be the practice of celebration. You and I deserve hell. Everything else is a gift. It's a gift can't believe I'm not in hell right now. You either. What? And so we ought to celebrate that. Jesus moves toward the sinner and the sufferer, never away from it. That ought to warm us so deeply. He cares intricately about your joy and mine. Joy not rooted in the circumstances, though they will certainly become difficult. Joy that is timeless, that we will experience in his presence forever and ever and ever. You may have been raised in a rule-heavy environment that suffocated you with an endless sense that you're just not measuring up. But notice, that isn't the fullness of faith. God has more for you. And we see God will bring about more for you. Trial on the outside, temptation on the inside. This this language of trial is is an interchangeable word that we'll see translated elsewhere as temptation, temptation. It can sap our joy. It can drain our joy. It tells a different story, doesn't it? It tells us you're never going to be happy. You're you're never going to be everything that you should be. You're never going to have everything you want. You're never going to measure up. And yet, as we saw in the book of Lamentation, biblical lament is lamenting the sorrows of this life and yet experiencing new morning mercies every single day in light of his faithfulness in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Christians in that sense aren't secular. That is we are obsessed with what's eternally true. We're fixated on what is true in eternity. Is there pain in your life and mine? Yes. Is there sorrow in your life and mine? Yeah, is there suffering in the world? Can you see the effects of sin? Can you see the strife and can you see the pain that that exists because of sin? Friend in Christ, All of those disappear in eternity. None of those things exist in eternity. And so we are fixated. We are are absolutely obsessed with what's eternally true. And what is true for us in Christ is that there is no pain, there is no sorrow, there is no suffering. Jesus has reckoned by the cross joy for us forever. And the situation may be bad, but this text tells us, in light of that, God is still good. Here's the kicker right at the end of that phrase, the word when, right? I know many of you, down deep, you really wish it said if, right? Count it joy, brothers and sisters, if you happen to meet trials of various kinds, right? I know many of us, like, obsessed with comfort. We, we've experienced a great deal of prosperity in the Western world. And so, down deep, we kind of hope it says, like, count it joy if, right? Joy, things are good, but if? You know, be joyful if it happens to get bad. It doesn't doesn't give us that. Martin Luther says it this way to pastors and church leaders. He said, we ought not to be ministers of the gospel if we're not content to be despised. Our Savior was hated and crucified. Hated and crucified and he didn't fight back against it. And so he says, therefore, if a, if a student isn't above his teacher, if a slave isn't above his master, then if the world hated you or hated me, they're going to hate you. And when, not if, when that happens, we'll say, ah, Jesus told me about this, right, right? In, in, in frustration and and, and, and in betrayal, you can look at that person or that situation in the eye and be like, okay, Jesus told me about you. I, Jesus told me. He, he said you would come at some point or another. And we receive that as a reminder. Oh, this is this is what Jesus endured. And notice, he didn't fight back against it even. He endured it and was resurrected victorious over it. And so, friend, you and I will be too. When you experience trial, even the trial that is on every single one of your calendar on a date that you don't know, but it's wisdom to know, you will be lowered six feet into the grave, either cremated or whatever remains happen to be left. You will be lowered into the grave. That will be a trying process for you. And yet, you will be raised victorious in spite of it. Because of Christ. When that happens. Not if. Now, I know I said all of that, and most of you were like, he's talking about someone else. My life... Definitely not going to do that. Definitely not going to die anytime soon either. But when this happens, it shouldn't shock us. We should see it for what it is. But notice what's happening in spite of that. When you meet these trials, you know that there's a testing in your faith producing steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect. So when you meet trials, you'll see that you are being made perfect and complete. So Trials reveal to us that which we most highly regard. Trials expose what we really love. Trials bring to the surface what we've really tried as hard as we can to push down deep. Trials bring up something. They reveal. And Where do I get that? Look at the next phrase. For you know that the Testing of your faith. Now, so when I read the testing of your faith, many of you 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 think about school and an exam you had to take in school. I don't want you to think that way. Okay, this isn't an educational term. This is a metallurgical term. Yeah, exactly. Right. This comes from the field of metallurgy. Right. If I had someone from the School of the Mines here, they'd get excited right now. Right. This is a mining term. When you when you dig out a raw material, it is ore, and that ore has Almost no value it 's only through the process of purification, literally here that word testing being purified its impurities being being risen to the surface, exposed, revealed that it becomes valuable, and so someone, a metal worker will, will come along and add a flux or there 's chemical or or different ways, but but in the end it, it, it often in this case it would have been melted or literally smelted right so if you've played i mean i love i love here's the thing most people don't have any recollection of this but you've played minecraft before and so you're like oh i totally know what he's talking about right and so you take this ore and it's purified it's melted down it's exposed to extreme heat and when that happens all of the impurities become separated from that raw material and the purity is enhanced That's what he's saying is happening. When you meet the trials of various kinds, you are to know that that is God revealing what is true about you. The purity and integrity of your faith is on display. I think I shared this with you before, but like if you're gold, you love the fire, you love the furnace, it just makes you more valuable. But trials reveal what we really most highly regard. Count it all joy. God's at work. Don't have joy in your circumstances, but have joy in spite of your circumstances. And when you're not able to do that, let that be an indicator, a reminder, a revelation of what you truly value, of what you've built your life around. Admit this. You have a few imperfections. A few, and if you find yourself going like, All right, there's there's an exception for everything, and you're not it, right? <laughs> you have imperfections, and if you don't think so, you have managed to keep people at such a far distance that nobody knows. But ask a friend, ask someone who loves you. Hey, what are my imperfections? And if you know they go like, oh, I don't can't think of any. Well, they're as terrified of finding their imperfections as you. You just found another insecure person. Find someone else. You have imperfections. And they were on display this last week, weren't they? Were your impatience, Was your impatience on display? Was your outrage on display? Was your was your difficulty with, with dealing with life on display? As those imperfection comes, as those imperfections come to the surface, we find out they're meant to expose something about us that God wants to do in us. That test is not an exam that you pass, right? Some of you are hoping like, oh yeah, test, I passed the test, right? That's not what this text is saying. You don't pass a purification test. You endure it, and you are shaped by it. I want to pass on to you even some wisdom that that many of you have shared, that I've shared with many of you, and I want you to see where I, I get it. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter twelve, the apostle Paul has some of his very weaknesses exposed. He has a vision of God's glory and the, and the mission that he's supposed to live out, and and it, it turns out here that God, knowing Paul and his his proneness to arrogance, grants him what is called a thorn in his side to keep him from boasting, to keep him from becoming conceited. So beginning in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God had shown to him, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. They just should leave me. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. I know some of you, that resonates with you, Right? But he that is the Lord said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness." So Paul says, "Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses." He does it elsewhere, right? Like people are really disappointed that that I, I didn't. I, I'm not a good public speaker. That's what he like. I didn't come with lofty speech, and he's like, "That's cool." The power of Christ rested on me anyway. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then or when I am weak, then I am strong. If I were to apply this, this was a I'm kind of passing on uh, some some wisdom that was passed on to me by different authors, mentors, and I want to break. There's, there's no way to soften this. This is the most painful thing I can think to tell a bunch of upper Midwesterners probably obsessed with work ethic and measuring up. Our weaknesses, frailties, and failures aren't keeping us from the power of Christ. Our delusions of strength and self-sufficiency are. Your weakness and failures are not keeping you from experiencing God's grace in your life. Your delusions of self-sufficiency are. The power of Christ rests on us when we experience and see weakness. When those flaws, when? When those flaws and failures and frailties come to the surface, that and, and only through that do we experience the grace of Christ. But here's the thing. You have no idea how weak and frail you are until you experience trials. You can convince yourself that you got everything you need until trials. When they come, they're this this loud screaming megaphone that you are not enough. You do not measure up. You're not ready. You're not good enough. And that, my friend, when that sets on you deeply, is actually a cause and source of comfort because you say, Christ is. I don't have to perform. I don't have to impress. I don't have to hide. I don't have to lie. I'm free. And what has ruled over me now is a place where I'm set free because of Christ. After all, you only feel the pain of losing things that you think you really need, right? You don't you don't lose something that has no value, right? You don't even know it. You lose the things that you think you need. You feel that loss. And friend, what he's saying is when you experience trial, when that comes, the purification, the revelation of those weaknesses, sins, and failures come to the surface, and they show us we didn't need those things anyway. And those things... They're not an exam that you hope you can get by unscathed. It's something God uses to reveal and to purify us. Because in the end, those things rule you. Look, I shared this, I've shared this for, for the last several years. When we, we felt called to plant in Sioux Falls, I love Sioux Falls. It's my favorite city in the world. I'm, I know it's crazy, I'm biased, it's amazing, right? I love it here. Um, It's a fast-growing city, and so one of the problems with Sioux Falls, though, is that as it's growing fast, the majority of you in this room, the majority of you in this room are in Sioux Falls because of work. You live in Sioux Falls because of a job. Down deep, that's what brought you here, right? Not all of you, but most of you. So here's the problem with that. Down deep, people in Sioux Falls believe the way to the good life is through work. The way to the good life is through achievement, The way to the good life is through accomplishment. And notice, you think that's the good life until trial exposes that it's not. How's that working for you? How effective has your job been at providing you deep and abiding joy? Like, how many in the room are like, man, I sleep like a baby because of my job. I just, whew, love it. I wake up excited. I don't even set an alarm. I just, woo, right? You laugh, but that's the myth that everyone believes. Everyone you know in this city has believed the myth. That's what what brings happiness. That's what brings joy. And that's why we say, nice to meet you. I'm so-and-so. Here's what I do. So praise God that Sioux Falls has very low unemployment because of this thing, right? But beware Beware and understand that when trial comes, you'll find out you didn't need that thing anyway. It was, it was a bad source of joy anyway. And trial exposes you. Your God is revealed. I'll just say it this way. Jane want, James wants us to be wise, joyful in trial, right? And I bet all of you want that, right? If I was like, hey, do you want to be joyful? You're like, yes. Yes. Do you want to be wise? Yes, right. Do you want to experience comfort? Yes. And then if I say like, do you want to suffer like Jesus? You're like no. <laughs> and James says you've missed Jesus. You've bought into the kingdom of this earth, comfort, success, and achievement, are how you like dominion and and winning. That's how you that's how you achieve success in this life and experience joy. And James says no. No. You experience joy when the impurities and imperfections, weaknesses, frailties, and sin come to the surface, and yet you find out there was grace waiting for you the whole time. It says it will produce steadfastness. Get that. It will, this testing, this exposing of weakness and sin will produce, produce steadfastness. It repeats it, and then that steadfastness will have its full effect. So this is a big deal, and we'll see this elsewhere in a, in a couple of sections ahead of this, right? This picture of steadfastness. So we'll come back to it, but I'll just simply say here that, like, let me, let's, let's, let's go Greek nerd for a minute. It's, it's this word, uh, hupermone, huper, huper right? Hypermone, like the word huper, which is hyper or super or, right, right? excessive, and then monet to stand. So it's literally hyperstanding, like you will experience hyperstanding. Like just even use your imagination there. They're like, I'm standing and then I'm hyperstanding, right? Like I'm, I'm standing and I, I don't I don't whatever that is for you, right? Like I'm, I, like I'm not just standing. You see that guy standing over there? No, no, no. He's hyperstanding. He is uber standing, right? And so he's saying that when when sin is revealed and and the imperfections come to the surface, that's when we don't just stand in the midst of trials, we superstand, right? We're, we're hyperstanders. We, we, we're steadfast, and, and that is actually something that, that leads us to the full effect, namely that we become perfect and complete. We become lacking in nothing. Here's the problem. Often, rather than wanting to be holy, we want comfort. We'd rather be comfortable than holy. And he says here that your joy is that God has a plan for you. God won't let your suffering or trial get the last word. He's doing something in and through you. And our desires to avoid those trials keep us from experiencing the grace of God that changes us. We're flimsy. We're flaky. We'll see this for the rest of the book of James. We're inconsistent. We're disintegrated. We lack integrity. And yet, when you see, right? You hear that? the very first word there, count it. When you consider or when you reckon what God is doing, that's when you experience hyperstanding. In the face of difficulty, you don't abandon what's fixed in your life, you stand on it. Here's the thing. What's actually fixed in your life might be unknown to you. The most true thing about you, you might not even know about yourself. The thing you've built your life around, you might not even be aware of. You might think you know what your life's about and what you're after. And James tells us that trial is God's merciful and gracious way. And here's the thing. This is what you'll know about trial, right? It's tailor-made. It is handcrafted to apply grace to your life in a specific way. Right? Some, of your, some of your deepest fears might be true. Have you, you know, like, you're, like the, the, the picture of Charlie Brown with a little bitty, you know, Charlie Brown rainstorm, right? It's just over Charlie Brown, right? It's like, you, some of you feel that way. Like It's almost like situation went out of its way to be perfectly miserable for me, right? Well, here's the thing. That might actually be true. And that is most certainly God's grace to you. God in His mercy didn't want to leave you there, and so yeah. Do you notice that girl or that guy said the most possible, like the most painful thing possible to you? That person in your life said or did the most awful thing to you. They poked you in the most sensitive nerve. They hit you at your deepest insecurity. They they exposed your deepest fears. It's like they knew. James says. Don't miss that God is the one who is perfecting you through it. God won't leave those things untouched. He has a plan for you to make you perfect. And it will be absolutely, completely, most certainly, uncomfortable. I want to kind of leave you with an encouragement as he says that ultimately what he's doing is he's perfecting you. Such that you will, did you catch that? Lack. In nothing. You'll be lacking in nothing. Now, I just make a couple of quick applications here. I want you to see, even I think you can kind of functionally observe this. Trials have a way of giving you things that you lack that you could never achieve without them. And I'll give you just a few of them. Things that we love and admire in one another. Right? Things that, like, as Paul was saying, that, that remove these conceited thoughts of ourselves. I'll give you one: humility and teachability, right? Humility and teachability. Trial has an uncanny way to make you humble and teachable. And so some of you, right, I can I relate, if, like, you, you're particularly arrogant or you're always right or you're unteachable. It's like, okay, well, like, you're going to get taken out to the woodshed sometime soon and it's going to be rough. And we're going to be the group of people who are like, no, we're not going to gloat and say, I told you so. We're going to go like, Yeah. It was rough out there, wasn't it? (laughs) You, You learned a lot from that, didn't you? And so a question we ought to be asking each other regularly, I hope you've heard me say it's like, what is the Lord teaching you in this? What is the Lord showing you in this, right? Most of it, we're just like, you know, this day was bad, this thing was bad, this is awful, there's this, and there's this, and I just have to go like, yeah, cool, that's great. What is the Lord doing in that? What is the Lord teaching you in that? It is less important what you do in your trials than what God is doing in your trials. After all, your joy isn't in that. Right? I mean, just, just listen to the outrage that we experience and express regularly. Something's broken, and so someone needs to pay, right? You better. We gotta do something. You know, here's what we need to do. And Jesus is like, no, you need to die. That's what you need to do. You need to lay down your life, and I'll carry it up again. God is perfecting you all the ways that you know you're lacking. Here's a friend God's not gonna leave you there, He's not gonna leave you here. He's making you perfect, and that's the only way you become humble and teachable. Here's another one compassion only comes through trial. I know some of you, some of you are deeply compassionate. Like, you're so winsome. I you, like, and, and you, you just, you suffer alongside others. And here's the thing that I know about you because of this. That has come about by deep hurt and trial. That's come about because your flaws and weaknesses and failures have come to the surface. And praise God, you're some of the most compassionate people I know, but I know you paid for that. I know that came at a cost. And so here's the thing, like, that, that's what... I even know in my own heart, like, I have compassion for people in a way that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't suffered. If I hadn't endured trials and failures of my own, I wouldn't have compassion. And here's what I know about you and me. It seems that if we apply this to, to this particular area, the only way we grow in compassion and empathy for others is we, is we suffer, we endure trials. I don't know why I'm laughing when I say that. It's not funny. It's joy. It's joy. have of it all joy. Here's another one. I think you experience freedom because of trials. Trials are the only way you can experience freedom. When bad things happen, you invite God into the courtroom of your judgment, and you say, why didn't you do that? And what you come to find is, is when that happens, there's something in your life that rules you. It owns you, such that you submit to and worship it, and you judge God by it. You see it as your God, and you see God is like someone who just didn't keep up his end of the deal. Right? You see yourself as the employer, and God as the employee, and you say, well, why didn't you do this? What I want you to know, and what I hope that we're able to help each other with, is that like that thing that you'll drag God into the, your own courtroom for owns you. It rules you. It governs every relationship you have, every decision you make. It owns you. And you know it. I don't even have to elaborate. I don't even have to convince you. It owns you. You can't picture life apart from it. And trial is God's kind way to drag you out of the prison and level its walls behind you. Trial is God's way to expose that he's better he is worthy. He can hold you. You can trust him. And that thing that's had you in bondage will hold you down no longer. You're free. After all, if, if your heart is ruled by comfort, then trial and chaos is hell. If your heart is ruled by the need for approval, right? Then, then experiencing your weakness as joy sounds terrible, that other people would know your weaknesses and failures? I already told you, they already do. You're just, they're just being nice, right? Or lying to you. I don't know. When it comes to the surface, you, you think that sounds terrible. And yet that is God's way of dragging you out. You don't, need, you don't need to impress those people anymore. You don't need to live up to that standard anymore. Receive the full acceptance and approval of God in Christ. Be set free. Just ask yourself, would failure in this certain area crush me? and lead me to despair, then it owns you. Look, we've learned this in my own house in the last year. You can't play a board game. You're not allowed to play a board game unless you're willing to lose, okay? If at some point you think it's the right thing to do to flip the board or quit or whatever or start an alliance with mom to beat dad, I don't know. (laughs) You're not ready for the game. So friend, don't, you're not ready to play the game if you can't lose. You're not ready to ask her out if you're not ready for her to say no. You're not ready to to take that job unless you're ready to be fired from it. You're not ready to step into a relationship. You're not ready for that kind of responsibility until you are ready to fail at it miserably and yet experience God's grace in it. And so some of the things in your own life, God's holding you back from because he knows he would kill you. He's like, not yet. Like, you're not ready for that. That would destroy you. And many of you who have maturity and humility in some of these areas, you're like, "Uh uh-huh, I remember that. I remember remember when the Lord exposed me and and then showed me nothing but grace. God's calling us to steadfastness, and he grants us transforming grace. And the way that he does it is through trial. So how can we, as he says, count it all joy? How can we regard it or consider it all joy? How is it possible for us to experience trials and difficulties, right? And this is, this, I don't have to go very far on this one. In the last year, if I said, hey, what trials or discomfort have you experienced? I, I doubt any of you are like, well, I can't think of any. It's just been a, it's been a great year, right? Here's, here's the thing I know. I, if that's true, I think it means that God's really up to something. I think that God's really up to something. In this room and in people who who are willing to experience what God has for us. The trials we're experiencing, I, I just believe, are preparing us for something. There's some perfection. There's something we're lacking that on the other side of this, whenever or however that may be, maybe Jesus comes back at the end of this, I don't know, but at the other end of this, we're going to have something we didn't have before it. And God is up to something. And how can we regard these trials as joy? This is faith, authentic Integrated faith. You see everything through Jesus. God will not give up on you. He will not leave you in your trial. He will not quit until you have everything. Everything that he has that he purchased for you in Christ, everything that he has laid out for you in Christ, he will will give it all to you. He will not withhold a single thing. I love Ephesians 1 tells us that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing, every, every single one. He will not quit until we are lacking. Do you see this? Nothing. And so how do we regard trials? As joy? We recognize that everything we're experiencing is something that we see through the lens of the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. This will be the most painful quote for you, right? It's from a, a pastor friend of mine that I know is that like for upper Midwesterners. Like the symbol of Christianity is a cross, not a ladder. And when you see your life through the work of the cross and the empty tomb, you have the courage to be Christian, the courage to be crucified. Think about this. Hebrews 12 says it this way, since we're surrounded by so many witnesses that we're going to lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely, we're going to run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Joy. The joy set before him endured the cross. Just stop for a minute. How do you find joy in the cross? Right? You answer that question, and, and, and you, you know that the Holy Spirit is going to mess you up. going to turn you into a new person and give you a new life. How did he have joy? Because he knew that he could despise the shame and be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, that same word, grant it, right, at the beginning there, or consider, reckon it. Verse 3, now consider him who endured. Hear that word, endured? Remember that word? Remember the Greek nerd? This is the Greek test, Right? Consider Him who hyper-stood. Consider Jesus who uber-stood. He had uber-steadfastness from sinners and hostility against Him so that you and I might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friend, how do we count it as joy? We see everything through the cross. Because after all, if the most innocent man betrayed and executed could be used for God's glory and for our good, then there is nothing, let me repeat, there is nothing that can stop God's plan for our joy in Him. If the cross and being betrayed and hung naked before those who mocked and ridiculed Him couldn't stop God bringing joy to you and me, then there's nothing in your life and mine that could do it either. Do you feel your life slipping through your hands? Friend, make Jesus your life. (laughs) Do you feel the cares of this life weighing you down? Friend, make Jesus your life. I want you to be able to look at every single situation. And because you know that Christ was not abandoned to the tomb, but raised victorious over it, you can see every situation, every trial, every mistreatment, betrayal, insult, persecution, discomfort. And because of Christ... I want you to count it all joy. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your mercy towards us in Christ. It is a mercy we do not deserve. Uh, I thank you that you have done for us what we could never have done for ourselves, and you have accomplished it through a way that, that defies our own understanding. I thank you that you used the foolishness and absurdity of the cross to become wisdom for us. I thank you that the joy you have granted to us is the same joy that Jesus was able to feel as he looked to the cross. As he sweat drops of blood, knowing that it would be painful and miserable, his joy in some miraculous way by the power of the spirit that was in him was able to grant him some measure of joy. I pray that we would experience an overflow of that joy in our own lives, in our own trials and failures and weaknesses. Might we turn from the false sources of joy. Might we turn from our obsession with the now. And Might we begin to experience the joy you have set before us in Christ. I pray that even now you would grant comfort to those of us who feel like the trials are never ending. Would you grant comfort and peace to those who wonder if this is ever going to come to an end? Remind them you're not going to leave them there. You're going to perfect them. You're going to give them everything they're lacking. There's not a thing you'll withhold from them. You'll give them every single thing in Christ. Maybe for some of us who've never heard this good news, maybe this is the first time we've considered that our, our current sources of joy are ins, insufficient or unsatisfactory. Might we look to you for the first time in faith and experience joy that outlasts every circumstance, joy that outlasts the betrayal. Uh, Joy, joy that outlasts the last dying breath on the cross, joy that outlasts the grave. Give us that joy in Jesus. Amen.